Can I ask you to turn with me for the last time in this series to the third letter of John the Apostle. And we'll read from verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does evil, he, he who does good, sorry, is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Let's pray once more. We thank you for that friend above all others, the one who laid down his life for us. We pray, O oh God, that you would impress his example into our souls this evening, even as we study this letter. Lord, we have the symbols of his bleeding death before us. May we not forget, overlook, or be casual in the face of these things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this short letter, written by the Apostle John, calling himself here the Elder, traces two themes, that of truth and love, and it sketches truth and love in lights and in shade and now back into the light. We begin by introdu being introduced to this man Gaius who's called Beloved, a dear friend and addressed as Beloved three times chapter, uh, sorry, verse 2, verse 5 and now verse 11. And Gaius is a man who walks in the truth and is encouraged to serve the church of Jesus Christ. And then we move into the shade. This man, Diotrephes, too big for his boots, a man who does not like to and will not be governed by anybody, a man who wants the first place in everything that he does. And now in this last section, we're introduced to the third character of this letter, a man called Demetrius. And as we look at Demetrius and the things that surround his introduction, we'll see an, an imitation of good, an illustration of godliness, and closing a declaration of peace. John then begins this last section, as we're considering it, with the only command that you find in this short letter. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. John's command is influenced by both the light and the shade. Do not imitate what is evil, but rather imitate what is good. Imitate, copy, model yourself on that which is morally and spiritually beneficial by God's own standards 
and not on that which is morally and spiritually harmful. Now, we are all in measure imitators. We all copy other people or things. Everybody here is either setting or following an example of sorts. The danger with imitation is when it's thoughtless on the one hand, when you don't even consider who you're aping, who you're copying, or when perhaps it's fearful and weak when you're being bullied into just going along and copying or going in the pattern of somebody who is bigger or stronger or more aggressive than you are. Imitation as a principle need not be a bad thing. Paul, for example, says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. There's a healthy pattern. Imitate what is good. Or again in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, don't forget that evil company corrupts good behaviour. If you hang around with those who are wicked, then you will pick up their habits of thought and speech and activity. And perhaps the highest example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, we are told that as we behold, in a, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. As you look at Christ and as you imitate him, then you are transformed into his image. You see, the great aim of a Christian is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become like the Lord Jesus. We are to imitate those who imitate him so that we might become like him. But the danger is, the risk is, that we will end up being conformed to the image of a Diotrephes unless we steadfastly and deliberately resist the impress of his example. Diotrephes is a bully. He's trying to put out of the church those who want to do what the apostle calls them to do. It would be very easy just to go with the flow. And perhaps Gaius' natural humility would have made it all too easy for him just to say, all right, we'll just do things the way Diotrephes wants to do them. And you know how you justify yourself, don't you? We won't do it for long. We won't do it as badly. We'll uh, just, uh, you know, cajole him along. We'll, we'll try not to upset him. And the end result is you end up just doing whatever Diotrephes wants you to do. And so John calls Gaius, his dear friend, actively to resist the imitation of what is evil and actively to imitate that which is good by God's definition. Find and embrace wholesome and holy models of God-like goodness. And that's really John's main point. Models of God-like 
goodness. Because John wants us to understand that the kind of life that you lead and the kind of models that you choose sends a very distinctive and definite message about your relationship to the living and true God. He says, the one who does good is of God, but he who does evil is not seen God. So here is a basic division. The man who imitates and does good, who wants to know what real righteousness, holiness and goodness is, is a man who shows you that he belongs to God. This is one of John's points all the way through his first letter. For example, in the third chapter, he tells us, Whoever has been born of God does not go on sinning, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. If you're of God, then goodness rather than evil is going to be governing your life. Or, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Or in the fifth chapter, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him or we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. You see the connection? If you're of God, if you're born of God, if you belong to God, you'll be marked by this resistance to evil. You will demonstrate the cultivation and pursuit of all that is good and godly by the divine standard. You will increasingly be, if you like, a chip off the old block. Having been born from above, your heavenly character will be clearer and clearer. In other words, doing good as God defines it. Your relationship to the truth, your demonstration of Christian love, doing good by God's standard is godlike, and the evidence that we need of our heavenly birth and our union with Jesus Christ. By contrast, the one who does evil has not seen God. <clears throat> Whoever sins, says John, has neither seen him nor known him. In 1 John 3, 6. The man who goes on, the woman who goes on pursuing evil, careless of the standards that God has established of righteousness and holiness, of moral purity, by definition has no true and saving knowledge of God. They have never had a saving encounter, a redeeming encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not enjoying that transforming vision by which we are made more and more like him. The eye of faith is not fixed upon God in Christ. How do you know? Because they're doing evil. They're pursuing things that are contrary to God without any care, without any regard, without any repentance. And incidentally, 
although it's not explicit John is at the very least suggesting that if Diotrephes goes on if not already in the way that he is going then he is proving himself to be no true child of God if you're doing good by God's definition it proves you are of God but if your life is marked by evil it proves that you've never seen him you don't know him you are not a saved man so you and I need to ask ourselves very soberly what does my pattern of life reveal about my relationship to God is it a pattern of committed and increasing goodness that shows that I am of God or is it a pattern of ongoing and perhaps careless evil that shows I do not know God and I have not seen by faith Jesus as Saviour my friend if there's no love no walking in truth if there's no holy affection and no holy action if there's no mark in you of God's goodness having taken root then you are not a Christian and you need Jesus Christ to wash you from your sins and to make you whole to bring you to God you must be born again that is our Lord's declaration it is necessary that you be born from above born of God that you may begin to do good without an active commitment to consistent gospel goodness you have no right to be called or considered a Christian and you need Jesus to save you you might also ask yourself very carefully and soberly who are my models who are the people who make an impression upon me who teach me how to think how to speak and how to live you see we live in a society where there are countless influences and pressures that militate against godliness every time you turn on a television every time you listen to your radio every time you surf the internet you're being exposed to models of how you should live when I first went to university I was staggered by the histrionic responses of most of my peers to ordinary and everyday life they, they used to just explode nobody seemed to live at a normal level everybody wanted to make a drama out of a crisis and then a more spectacular drama out of any given drama there seemed to be no proportion no balance none of that sober mindedness that the Bible commends as a Christian virtue do you know what I think the problem honestly was? they'd learned how to live life and react to problems by watching soap operas you see somebody who reacts normally to a minor crisis isn't good television are they you can't get some thrilling throbbing storyline out of somebody who responds normally thoughtfully sanely and stably 
you need someone who's going to have a whitey. You need someone who's going to have a hissy fit at the least uh, problem. And what's the problem? That we learn how to live through the things, the people and the events that we see portrayed around us. And so we are being influenced. We are having these models pressed in upon us. And we will simply start living the way that everybody else is living unless, as John commands us, we do not, we actively resist the imitation of what is offensive to God and cultivate an imitation of what is pleasing to God. My brothers and sisters, if evil examples fill our vision and fill our lives continually, then ours will be lives of confusion and compromise. You will never know how to live for the glory of God in the pursuit of goodness if you never fix your eyes upon good and godly and mature saints. You and I need actively to seek out the purest and highest examples and to find them and to follow them. In Proverbs in chapter 12, there's so much wisdom about companionship in the book of Proverbs. (coughs) Chapter 12 and verse 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. That's not a warning to the simple. That's a warning to the righteous. Christian, choose your companions with care. Because if you walk with the wicked, he will take you out of the path of what is good. And learn, perhaps more incidentally, that good men like Gaius still need some counsels and some cautions. Gaius is praised by a man who loves him in Christ Jesus. And yet, Gaius still needs the exhortation, Beloved friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is of good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. That's not given to someone that John doesn't know where they stand. That's not a command that's issued to somebody who maybe is hanging in the balance. That's a command that is issued to the finest man, it seems, in the church at this time. Hold the line. Flee wickedness. Repent of any influence that Diocrephes has had on you. Pursue what is good. Imitate what is righteous. The best of us always need counsels and cautions. We continually require direction and instruction from the word of God. But then we move on in verse 12 to an illustration of godliness. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself and we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. Up to this point, Gaius, you're doing well. Diotrephes is a threat. Don't imitate evil Diotrephes. Imitate what is good. Now what if Gaius is himself the only model in this church of real real goodness. Who do I imitate? There's a man called Demetrius coming. He's a model worth following. Demetrius has a good testimony from everyone. 
Demetrius may very well be the man who carried this letter from John to Gaius. It's quite possible that he was one of those described in verse 5 as someone who's a brother and a stranger. So Demetrius is on the one hand an example worth copying. There's someone coming, guys, when you meet this man, you'll be able to say, ah, this is what goodness looks like in a God-honouring man. And, on the other hand, Demetrius is going to be his first test as to whether or not he's not going to imitate Diotrephes. You see, if he imitates Diotrephes, he's going to push Demetrius out, because that's what Diotrephes wants him to do. But he's going to have an opportunity now to show that he's going to follow the Apostle's command, and in doing so, he'll actually get another model to follow. Now, Demetrius, like Diotrephes, has a pagan name, referring to one of the gods of the Roman pantheon. But, again, a little encouragement. We said that perhaps Diotrephes had been brought up in this pagan environment, uh, quite likely toward the top of the tree, and had learned his arrogance and his pride, perhaps never had a mother or father who said no to him. Demetrius has got a similar name, but we see that grace can overcome even the baggage of our nurture, as well as the vileness of our nature. Demetrius is a converted pagan, and he has become a model of true godliness. And he's a well-credentialed man. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, the Jews were told that you're not to receive any testimony except by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How does, Diotre- how does Gaius sorry, know that he can receive Demetrius with confidence? How does he know that he's a kind of man who, if he receives him, will enable him to become a fellow worker for the truth? Well, because there are three testimonies to the fact that Demetrius is one of the good guys. First of all, there's a testimony from everybody. For example, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, we find this kind of language. Therefore, brothers, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In the early church, everybody knew who these seven good men would be. They had a good reputation. And Demetrius is like that, at least in Ephesus, where John probably is, and anywhere else he's gone. The people who know him hold him in high esteem. He's a good man. He's a true follower of Jesus Christ. And John's sense here is that this man's reputation is fixed in the eyes of God's people. There's an enduringly valid affirmation of his character among all the well, the the healthy-minded saints. When they meet Demetrius, they all say, this is a man of God. His second witness is the truth itself. Now what does John mean by that? Most likely that the truth shines out in the life of Demetrius. It's manifest in him. Gaius will find a true fellow in Christ. Gaius, you walk in the truth. In Demetrius, you'll find another man who's got a testimony from the truth. His belief translates into behaviour. 
What he believes makes a difference to how he lives. Everything he says about who God is, what God has done, and what God requires us to do in response to God's gracious dealings is consistently played out in the character of Demetrius. The truth itself gives him an endorsement. You know what an endorsement is? Those little phrases that goes in the back of the book? This is the most wonderful book that's ever been written since paper was invented. Please read it, signed by whoever. Well, if you put a cover on Demetrius, there'd be a line on the back. This man practices what he preaches, says the truth. That's the kind of man Demetrius is. The truth itself commends him. John is confident that when Gaius and Demetrius get together, Demetrius' lively faith will be quickly evident in the things that he talks about and in the life that he lives. (coughs) And the third testimony comes from John and possibly from the whole church in Ephesus. We also bear witness. Now that may be we, John speaking just of himself, or it may be John and the others in the church at Ephesus. And you know that our testimony is true. Suppose somebody was coming to your house. Let me use an example. Our friend Francesco has come to this country. And uh, he got in touch with me and said, I'd like to come, do you know anywhere that you can stay? Well, he expressed who he was. I spoke with him and I saw a man who had a, a, a testimony from the truth. He loved Christ. He was speaking with the right things. But you know what one of the clinches was? I called my friend, Pastor Reno, and I said, I've, I've had this man get in touch with me from Sicily, and his name is Francesco. Do you know him? Ah, yes, Francesco. And Pastor Ulfo told me a little bit about Fine. Any friend of Pastor Reno's is a friend of mine. John's doing the same thing. Beloved Gaius, Demetrius is my friend. He gets my testimony. And you know that my testimony is true. If Gaius can rely on the word of the Apostle John with that bond of love that binds them together, then he knows that Demetrius is a man that he can trust. These testimonies carry weight with dear Gaius. So here then is an illustration of godliness. Everybody who knows him, the truth itself, and John in particular, are able to say Demetrius is a man worth copying. He's a man in whom godliness is really shining. Don't you wish you could meet a man like Demetrius? When everybody and the truth and an apostle say this is one of the good guys, wouldn't you like to meet a man like that? And what a great example he would be to us. Well, do you know a Demetrius? Do you know a man or a woman, a mature saint, who lives in an atmosphere of godliness, whose life is marked in all its parts by consistent and active goodness? Watch and learn. Make yourself 
someone to be mentored by such a believer get in the atmosphere of that saint and learn from them what goodness looks like in this fallen world by those who are following God find your Demetrius it doesn't have to be someone who's at the top of the tree anybody who's ahead of you in terms of the pursuit of godliness can be such an example to you seek them out actively do not imitate what is evil don't submit yourself to the flood of pressures and impresses that will drive you away from God find the men and the women worth copying and set out to copy them So are you ready to be Demetrius? Are you such a man or such a woman? At least in measure. Are you seeking to be such a model? Are you becoming such a model? Now the church is made up of individuals. The church is made up of different members. You wouldn't want all the arms to be legs or all the eyes to be ears. It would be grotesque and it would be unhealthy. We need to take account of different gifts and different graces. But perhaps one way to answer this question is to ask yourself this honestly. Would you really want to be part of a church where your attitude is the norm? Would you be able to say that if everyone had the same desires as you, the same appetites as you, the same spirit as you, the same engagement as you, the same eagerness for God as you show, the same manifest goodness, the same pursuit of God-likeness, that's just the kind of church you'd want to be a part of. Remember, I'm not saying you want to be a church where everybody's just like you. That would make any one of us shudder, I imagine. If it doesn't, then you want to study some humility. But we're not talking about a church full of clones. If everybody was pursuing God like you are pursuing God, would that be the kind of church that would be pressing hard after things that are good? Find your Demetrius but also be a Demetrius by looking to Jesus Christ. And then John closes with a declaration of peace. It's been a short letter. Perhaps John only had a small piece of paper. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. This little farewell reveals, first of all, an overflowing heart. John says, I've got so much to say. Perhaps some of it, because of the circumstances, might be a little delicate, some a little difficult, perhaps some a little more personal. But John's primary point is this, that I have more to say than love can fit on a single page. These men are bound together by love in Christ Jesus. You can't have one man writing to another and calling him beloved Gaius four times in the space of a few lines without understanding that these men delight in one another. 
John has an overflowing heart and his pen simply cannot keep up. Do you have friends like that? Written communication is useful. Notes and cards are wonderful. Even emails can be efficient because you can write to hundreds of people if you need to all at once. Although if you're writing to hundreds, that probably means you're a spammer. But you can at least write to a few people at once and express the same thing. It's, it's efficient. But true love and true friendship demands more than pen and ink can supply. True friendship, genuine gospel love, wants to meet face to face. John's got an overflowing heart and he also reveals a loving hope. I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Now, on one level that's a fairly typical farewell for this kind of letter at this time. But John heightens it with Christian sweetness. Because in the Bible, speaking to someone face to face is the language of the deepest spiritual intimacy. What was it that Moses enjoyed in a way that nobody else did? According to Exodus chapter 33 and Numbers chapter 12, Moses was the man with whom God spoke face to face. God drew near to the man who was honoured to be called a friend of God. Abraham enjoyed that kind of intimacy. God came and spoke with him face to face. In 1 Corinthians again, chapter 13 and verse 12, (coughs) the apostle says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We are close to God in Christ, yes, but it's a dim vision. There's coming a time when distance will disappear and when we shall see the Lord Jesus face to face. Did you know that that's what the Lord Jesus desires for his church? That the the eagerness of Christ's soul for his people is this, as he expresses it in the prayer that he prayed shortly before he died, Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am. I'm writing to them. I will send them my messengers. But my heart, if you will, is more full of love than pen and ink can express. And I want them to be with me where I am. I want them to be with me face to face. John was eager for that day. When we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Even now gazing at him from a distance, as in a mirror, we are being transformed from glory into glory. When we see him face to face, when the spiritual intimacy of that last day is established with the bride of Christ, as the bridegroom returns, then we shall be transformed and we shall draw near to him. It's what the church is longing for as the book of the Revelation closes. How does it finish? What do the Spirit and the bride say? 
Come, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We want to see the one that we love face to face. And John, as it were, steps into that vehicle and he uses that language of his desire, if you will. And I don't mean to to dismiss it. He wants to hang out with Gaius. He wants to spend time with the beloved Gaius. He wants just to be there with him, to see his features, to spend time in his presence. It's a language and a hope that reflects close hearts, freedom and familiarity in relationship, an expectation eagerly to pour out souls mutually in one another's presence. And so there's a peaceful greeting. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. And again, all of this language is is packed with Christian freight because peace to you is the typical Hebrew farewell, shalom. But you see, again, it's been heightened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What did our Lord say at, at his, uh, after his resurrection? In John's Gospel again, I think this has imprinted itself upon John's soul in a particular way. Chapter 20 and verse 19. The Lord Jesus came amongst the disciples and he stood in the midst of them and it was the crucified Christ who'd risen again and triumphed over sin and over death and over hell who could say to his disciples peace be with you and he said to them again peace to you as the father has sent me I also send you and again after eight days on the following Lord's day he came again inside with Thomas being with them the doors being shut and he stood in the midst and he said peace to you and John takes up the language the, the peace, the fullness, the wholeness, the blessing that the risen Christ has secured for his people with God and to a man called Gaius who may be at least in some measure isolated in a church where Diotrephes is throwing his weight around to try and make Gaius and anybody like him squeezed onto the margins and then out of the church What a blessing for John to be praying for Gaius and to tell his friend that this is what he wants. Gaius, may God's peace in Christ be your portion. Isn't that what you need in times of trouble? Tense circumstances, difficult situations? God's peace in Christ be yours. But John has a very big heart. And so his greetings spill over to everybody because a close-knit community doesn't eradicate genuine individuality. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Again, why is this the place where John decides to speak about friends? Do you know what friends do? According to John 15, friends are the ones who've had Jesus Christ 
lay down his life for them. Friends, having been so loved by God in Christ, they then are ready to lay down their lives for one another. Truth and love. The kind of sacrificial service that Gaius and others in the church are being called to. Sacrificial love. Our friends, the ones who are willing to die for you, they greet you. Greet those friends, the ones that we are willing to die for. Greet them by name. We're bound together by the crimson blood of Jesus Christ. We are friends of his and therefore friends one to another. It's the mark of real pastoral care and of genuine friendship. The good shepherd calls his sheep by what? Their names. Not their name, not sheep, follow me, but the individual names of each of his sheep. And the ground of the relationship is not degrees of prominence, but the reality of faithfulness. The ones for whom Christ has died, the ones who have been made ready to die for each other. Who are your friends? Do you have relationships like this? Who are the people in this church, first and foremost, or perhaps in other congregations, with whom you have this relationship of open-hearted transparency, eager delight in their company, the people whose love you can be confident of, so you don't need to be guarding your speech in their presence. You look forward to just sitting down with them and being able to gush. And all your joys and all your fears and all your frustrations and all your hopes can simply roll out because you are friends. I suggest to you that we've allowed our definition of friendship to become quite anemic in this day. I don't think Facebook has helped. You want to be my friend? Do. Want to be my friend? Do. Want to be my friend? Do. Don't want to be my friend? Uh -uh. What kind of relationship is that? There's merit in it. You can keep in touch with people a long way away. But is that what it means to be a friend? See, we, we exist in a world of distance. People like to keep one another at arm's length. Some of you live in Maidenbow. You don't have to go very far from here. You'll find places in this neighbourhood where they haven't even bothered building a path between the doorways of the houses next to one another. Because no one expects you to want to be able to talk to your neighbour. You get into your car bubble, haven't come out of your house bubble, you drive to your work bubble. If you really want to talk to anybody, you text them, you email them, Maybe you phone them, but that's actually like talking to somebody. Is that really friendship? Who are your friends? You need them. It's undermined by remoteness in communication and relationship and by coolness of heart. Well, I just don't have any friends. How friendly are you? Because I have a Bible that says if someone doesn't have any friends, perhaps one of the first questions they need to ask is whether or not they are friendly. Friendship is a two-way investment. 
It cannot be sustained by one person simply expressing all these kinds of things. I don't think John turned up and Gaius said, all right. I think when John arrived, two men who loved one another in Jesus Christ saw each other face to face. I don't believe that they said, how do you do? I think there was something a little more. And I think they looked forward to the hours that they would spend together in Gaius' home, enjoying one another's company. I ask you also, do your attitudes and actions reveal a healthy affection for an investment in the church? John was in Ephesus, but he wrote to Gaius and he said, I want you to greet every one of the people of God there by name. If John wrote to you and said, greet every person in the church, everyone who truly loves Christ by name, could you do it? Now some of you have got a better memory than others, fair enough. But I suggest to you that if you would need to start looking at your members and friends list in order to tell who the friends in this church are by name, then you need to correct your idea of what it is to be a member of the church. Because a healthy saint knows the names of the friends but he loves the persons of the friends now some of us have faces that are hard to love let's not beat around the bush but friends love one another and they delight to be together and they enjoy fellowship with one another yes we're flawed yes we have our foibles yes we have our bad days But how eagerly do you look forward to being with the friends? How readily do you come to worship God in the presence of the friends? Do you seek and use opportunities to be with your friends outside of the times when you're supposed to be with your friends? Even the last... Do I need to make time to get with... Well, yes, in one sense you do. But if they're your friends, is it any burden... This is the kind of Christ-like love that is to mark us, fostering love and fellowship within and without. Because this is the love that characterises the saints. And do you know why that is so? Because it's the love that characterises God. And if we are born of him, then we are doing good like him. And the good that he has done for us finds its ultimate expression and example in the coming of Jesus Christ to die in our place. Gaius walked in truth. If we do the same, we are going to be marked by a sacrificial love that secures, binds and compels the saints as Christ's love for us does to live under its impression mutual examples of what it means to love in word and deed to walk in the truth to do good you see where Christ is known in this way where Christ's death is before us as the great demonstration of what it is to love Diotrephes has to wither because there's no space for a man who loves the preeminence and Gaius and Demetrius 
will flourish and love and truth will prosper and the almighty and saving God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in us. Amen.